Everyone seems to be talking about self-funding. But who's thinking about taking stop-loss to the next level? And what innovations do they see in the market today and in the near future? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman. We've talked an awful lot on the podcast about a resurgence of interest or even a new interest in partially self-funded plans. And inevitably, that conversation comes around to stop loss. The problem or the challenge, depending on how you see it, is that today, for successful stop-loss practitioners, stop-loss isn't just stop-loss, and that may not make any sense. So we've invited Scotty Campbell, who's Senior VP at Stealth Partner Group, to join us to talk about how stop-loss isn't just stop-loss anymore. With that, welcome, Scotty. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So give us a quick bit about your background and how you ended up doing what you're doing today. Yeah, I, uh, I've always known I wanted to do sales. I had a really cool sales internship in college at a really large shipping supply company. And I realized, hey, I really like sales, but I want to do something more that stimulated my mind than talking about bubble wrap and packing tape. And it just so happened a number of insurance companies interviewed on campus I went through the whole process and did my research to be a good little business school student and first interviewed with Unum and then interviewed with Sun Life and got my first big kid job right out of college at at Sun Life, which had a really great college recruiting and uh, new hire program. And fast forward 15 years later, I'm, I'm in what I call the black hole, which is the benefits industry. You can't leave. No, it, it's amazing that once you get in, you you can't get out. It's like the mafia, right? Yeah, absolutely. Except and, we, uh, use, we use pens instead of guns. Yeah, absolutely. And I worked at three carriers, and now I'm at a at a wholesaler. And so I've really just have this 15 year experience. It's all I really know, but I'm passionate about it and and really enjoy it. And I think we're in a great market and a dynamic time and opportunity to make some real change. And you have the carrier merit badge, which a bunch of us do. So God bless. So you survived yes. that. <laughs> so when I started by saying the stop loss industry isn't just stop loss anymore, I, mean, I think the successful stop loss partners that, that work with brokers are starting to bring a lot more to the table. How did that come about and why is it even more necessary today than ever? Is it just self-preservation on the claim side or is it more than that? I think it's a component of that. And I think you know, when you're a stop loss carrier, you're, you have this enemy and slash friend with the bukas. You really need the bukas, but your goal is to take market share away from them, whether that's fully insured and show a company the light, as I like to say, or in a self-funded model, provide an, an opportunity of why, you know, using your solution is better than, than doing one size fits all and, and hitting the easy button. 
And so it's just, I think, self-preservation, but in order to meet the needs of your client is really what's had this evolution. And we can trace a lot of it back to ACA. Stop loss can kind of always be viewed as a commodity. And as a carrier, you need to do something to separate yourself on a spreadsheet. But once ACA took away an annual limit and a lifetime limit of a policy, it opened so much risk to the stop loss carriers that they had to find a way to kind of fight fire where where they could. And I still feel like they're bringing a knife to a gunfight, but at least they've got a fighting chance. Well, that's good. So, I mean, if, if I'm a broker and I'm interested in working with somebody that, that can help me with a stop-loss partner, that can help me put more on the table, where's the low-hanging fruit? Let's start there, and then we can go to the kind of more esoteric stuff. Yeah, I think the low-hanging fruit is is really just breaking out the stop-loss away from the bukas and finding a way to really help the consultant understand what advantages come with having that outside stop loss so that you don't have the fox watching the hen house, so to say. And once you kind of helping consultants do that, it then starts to open the conversation about, okay, this is easy because stop loss doesn't affect the user. It doesn't impact the member at all. It's all behind the scenes and behind the wizard's curtain. But then once you've made that step, it opens up the conversation with the client about all the other kind of cost containment stuff you can do, whether that's, you know, doing the pharmacy or, you know, what's happening with dialysis or how you can really start to, what I tell people is manage your health plan like you manage the rest of your business. And that's what I think is a big disconnect in the insurance world when all these businesses are wherever they're else in their business, they're spending millions of dollars a year. They have a plan. They know they project things out three years. They have an opportunity to control costs or, or be competitive. And they're just trained to think of benefits. They're conditioned to think about it as a 12-month decision, which is just kind of crazy to me. And that's what I think self-funding gives you the opportunity is let's manage this like you manage the rest of your business. Because I think, Mr. CFO, you probably know what everything cost in this building down to the cost of the paperclip, but you don't know that over here where you're spending millions of dollars. For the broker, is is the first, you know, eyes slamming open the kind of depth of data that you can provide? I do think so. Even when you're self-funded with the book, it's great what you get compared to what you get when you're fully insured. And it varies across the Buka platforms, but by and large, you get some pretty good information as soon as you flip that switch on the funding mechanism. And then as soon as you're willing to use a, a true third-party administrator, then it's it's almost overwhelming the amount of data that's available. And so there's two kind of things that happen out of that. The first is, great, now I have all this data. What do I do with it? And what do I even look for? And then how do I use this to provide a better experience for my client, uh, for my members, and then also save money on and get an ROI or at least control my costs? So do you find that oftentimes you're playing with all this data, that you're playing the role of an educator as well? I do. I feel like a lot of times we're trying to show you what's out there. And because all I do is live in a self-funded world and a self-funded ecosystem, I'm not a consultant that also has to know about Ben Admin platforms. Who would have thought 10 years ago, the consultants would have to be such experts in like data feeds and AC and all these other things that happen just with enrollment platforms. And so it's really hard if you're that consultant 
to be in charge of a whole benefit plan and be as big of an expert in everything. And I think that's when you have someone that all they do is self-funding. Now, whether it's someone on the stop loss side or someone on the PBM side or TPA, you need to have partners and resources that can bring solutions because every client's different and their needs are different. But at the end of the day, there's no way to control your costs staying fully insured. The only way to really ever take control of your health plan is be self-funded. Do you find that oftentimes you are also helping benefit advisors who get this whole dump truck full of data all of a sudden to hook up with folks who do analytics to help give them a dashboard where the data becomes actionable for themselves and for their clients? Yeah, I think that's the most important thing. It's, okay, what does this data mean? And now how can we use this, like I said earlier, to manage this health plan like we manage the rest of the business? Where where can we squeeze out cost? Where can we provide value? What is working? What isn't working? And you can't make those kind of decisions until you have data. And then you need a way to quantify that data. And now a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshaperstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshaperstrategies.com. That's shiftshaperstrategies.com. And now back to our discussion. So let's go into more specifics. When you're working with a uh, an advisor whose eyes have just been slammed open by the amount of data they get, and they get some analytics and whatnot, what cost drivers do you see from your stop-loss chair that are the most manageable or that offer the most immediate gratification? Yep. I think the consultants view it as every day a consultant tells me about how great this new PBM deal is. And that's kind of like the the new frontier. But when we try and get involved from a stop loss perspective, the stop loss carrier doesn't really care much about the PBM. I also think it's hard for them to quantify because any PBM could have 20 different offers out there and they don't know how it really impacts aggregate claims. But it a lot of times, especially med is especially med and whether you get it for 10% more or less, just that is, that's really what stop loss carriers care about. I think the next thing is looking at what's happening with dialysis. Dialysis to me is an easy thing to find a way to control costs. And you don't really get in the way of BUCA contracts or other things that happen within the BUCA things that they have with their providers because so much of the dialysis market is controlled by two people who are two, not people, but two firms who have such market share. And there's been legislation and there's language that really supports it being easy to break that out. So we try to look at dialysis. We try to look at transplants. We try to look at what can you do from a network perspective. And I think a big emerging thing that is we're going to see a ton of in the next five years is a reversal of having a huge PPO network. I think the the trend is going to be to direct contracting and narrow networks. I think that allows you to get 
better unit price costs, allows you to dictate care better than what a buka can do that needs to please every hospital because they need everyone in there. And it also allows you to get much more aggressive utilization and case management and disease management. All those things really happen. It's just more work. But once you get further away and unwind the bundled Buka product you're getting, the more opportunity you have to impact claims. Well, I won't argue any of that. I just I do have a question, though, which is if you start talking about direct contracting and narrow networks, who's doing that work? Who's going out and doing the contracting? Because typically that's been a role that's been reserved for the carriers. Aren't tons of people out there, you know, doing it on, on street corners and what? I mean, who who does that for a small self-insured plan? Yeah, I think that's the big, uh, what's the, I'm a little too young to have watched the show, the $64,000 question or whatever it is. But uh, yeah, that's, that's what's just going to come up. And I think that is, you know, there's the reference-based pricing vendors that once they get enough scale in any market, then they'll do direct contracting just to block out the noise. There's some innovative TPAs doing it. And then there's brokers that just, I have some consultants I work with that that's their mantra. And, and I think that's where a consult can really show a difference between themselves and their competitors is their ability to go do that. But the biggest problem is there's no real scale across the health system. In any market, you might have two or three major health systems, but none of them have scale countrywide. Even if you look at somebody like H. HCA, the number one healthcare provider in America, hospital-wise, they're just the dominant player in like 12, 13 markets. And so it ends up becoming a tremendous amount of effort to go and do this for an employer that has employees in, in pockets all throughout the US. It's tough, but you have to do something. The path we're on right now, it has always not been sustainable, but it's just the next place to go get m- find a way to wrench savings out of. And I don't really have an answer other than it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. I think we're in the the first inning of that baseball game. Well, you know, it's interesting because the DPC providers have by and large walked away from interfacing with the large carriers or with any carriers in most cases. Are they aground? I mean, every time we talk about building narrow networks and contracting direct and whatnot, I wonder What's the thing that's going to make the physician's light bulb goes on or go on or the provider's writ large light bulb go on and go, hey, there's a better way to do this? Because they all seem to be it's it's like those old Listerine commercials. It's the taste they hate twice a day. They all mm-hmm. seem to be so tied into that old system and they, they're they're almost unwilling to let go. What do you, do you have a thought on what you see changing that? Yeah, I'm a big believer in the direct primary care model. I think that you know, you're going to physicians and you're saying, hey, do more being a doctor, do less herding cattle. You know, like at my primary care doctor, now he has somebody come in just to take notes so that he can focus on me for the 12 minutes I'm in there. And ultimately, I think if you provided them the ability to just practice medicine, which is what they got into the to their profession for anyways, and do more of that, it ends up being better. But it's still such a new concept and idea. And there's not a big scaled vendor you can point to and say, hey, this model works and either join them or let's create something similar like it. But when you look at the pie chart of a self-funded health plan, they used to teach you, you know, when I was in at Sun Life and in stop loss rookie school, they would talk about that RX is 
three to 7%. And now we think you're a high performing health plan if your RX spend is less than 20%. And that's grown bigger. And that certainly deserves attention. But still the lion's share of where all the money is being spent is at facility charges. Now, physicians, everyone, people are much more likely to go see physicians and than they are to go to a hospital. So it's important to control that entry point and that communication. But I think you have to look at it from two lenses is what are we trying to do for the member, which the DPC and those kind of physician things are important. And then what are we doing for the plan? And that's when you need to attack the unit cost at the facilities in a way. And what's interesting about that facility thing is that if you're one of the bukas sitting across the table from that hospital system and that hospital has 35% market share today, you really can't do much to say, I'm going to take you from 35 to 45% market share because you need the other health systems in your network. Otherwise, you you lose. I've, I've seen some narrow network HMOs that they'll do to varying degrees of success. But when you're sitting there as a consultant or a narrow network vendor or somebody trying to do any of these things, you can literally say, we're going to take it. So on this health plan, instead of you getting your 35% market share, you're going to get 85, 90%. And that's something nobody else can offer them, but they're not used to having that conversation. And I just think that that more and more is going to need to be what happens to eventually control these costs. What role do you see consumers playing in this? Because it's really, at the end of the day, it's where the consumer walks with their money, isn't it? Right. And I think it's up to the employer and the consultant when you do these things. Where I see things like reference-based pricing fail is it's almost always on the communication strategy. These are humans and you're talking about a very sensitive thing. And so you can't just talk about it at open enrollment. There just needs to be a lot more that goes into it. But I think you do this with plan design and you with contributions and you give people a choice through that way. You can either do it with the carrot or the stick. But it's interesting, anywhere else in your business, you'll tell employees how much they can spend and what they can do for travel, what credit card they have to use. You can tell employees, we reimburse up to a certain amount for hotels. So if an employee decides, I want to stay at a Four Seasons, that's fine. They pay the difference and nobody's upset about it. But it just seems like healthcare is one of these things where you don't want to tell people what to do, but it's just getting to the point now where it's just so unaffordable for a lot of Americans. Well, and as you pointed out before, the, you know, the Four Seasons has competition from everything from a a days in all the way to maybe beyond them to a, you know, a a higher level chain of hotels. But if you go out into the marketplace, I mean, years ago, I was, I was with a a division of Medical Mutual of Ohio and I was talking to one of the guys out there and they're, they're based in Cleveland and they were talking about how, you know, not too many years ago, there were 12 or 13 health systems and now there are three. So to your, to the point you made earlier, where do you go? Mm-hmm. I mean, th- th- there isn't, you have the Ritz-Carlton or you have the Four Seasons, and that's pretty much it because the community hospitals that were the Days Inns and the Holiday Inn Expresses, they're gone. Right. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic shift. But if you talk to those two hospitals in that system, they're in a fierce competitive battle with each other in that market. And they're, from what I found, very open if it means bed days, that's what they care about, bed days there. And so I think that that's just going to be some kind of shift where if you can drive market share, what 
the facility is now willing to do. But it's definitely a different model, and it's the players and the industry is so established that it's going to take a while. But I'll I'll tell you this from a stop loss perspective: seven years ago, I didn't even know what RBP was, and then five years ago, it was one percent of what I do, and now today. RBP or a narrow network is probably 20% of what I do. And that's a, there's no huge, you know, there's no huge hedge fund or billions of dollars behind these things. This is all done really like guerrilla warfare and it's getting more and more momentum. And I just think that it's too early to tell any of that stuff, but there's at least enough people talking or trying to do things that I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to continue to find where it's just worth it to unbundle and outsource all these different things because there's just enough dollars at stake that it's worth it. It's worth enough time and American entrepreneurship will, will take over as long as the monopoly can't remain a monopoly. And I just feel like there's momentum finally. And that's a great place to, to end our chat for today. Scotty Campbell, Senior VP at Stealth Partner Group. Scotty, thanks for sharing your expertise. We hope you'll come back and join us again. Thanks a lot. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.